The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Well, we are transitioning. Um, Over the last couple weeks, we had been sitting in uh, a passage that had been particularly helpful for me, uh, which was John 15. And we had been talking about what it means to abide in Christ. Um, And as we studied this glorious topic of union and communion with God, we have come across a profound invitation that Jesus himself offers us, not once, but twice in that passage. In John 15, verse 7, he says to his followers, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then following that, in verse 16, he says, I chose you, I appointed you to bear fruit in abiding. So whatever you ask in the Father, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, when you understand the gravity of the invitation that Jesus is offering here, this is absolutely and profoundly life-changing. Because prayer has a power to align our hearts with God in a way that cannot be faked, nor can it be shortcutted. Prayer is an essential element of growing into the best, most Christ-like version of yourself. In fact, Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It's an essential, a crucial component of increasingly experiencing the fullness of God's grace and his new daily mercies. Now the problem with this invitation is that there are more ways to pray incorrectly than there are ways to pray correctly. Now let me clarify this here as we kind of breach this topic. God hears all of our prayers, even the bad ones, okay? Even before we know what or how to pray, God is in tune with what you might be asking for. See, he tells us that even when we don't have the words to pray, the Holy Spirit is gladly interceding for us with groanings that are too deep for words. However, Prayer, the act of prayer, the discipline of prayer has a destination for our heart that incorrect prayer does not bring us to. Now let me illustrate this. When you're driving on the the interstate, ugh, man, my tongue. When you are driving down the interstate in the middle of January, Right in the middle of a snowstorm. I'm sorry to take you to that place in the middle of July, but let, just for a moment. When you're driving down the interstate, the snow's everywhere. You're the only one on the road, and you just have to get home. You, you probably know that feeling. You're, you're sitting up on the edge of your seat. You've got the grip uh, on the steering wheel. And if there were a quota for praying for that day, you've maxed it out in that 15 minutes already. Now, you know... There's only one way to get home, right? That's to stay on the road. If you veer off, obviously you're going to crash. You're going to be stuck in the ditch. 
But that one way to get home is unclear because a snowplow has yet to come and plow that path for you. Now, when you look out over the road, you look over the interstate, the interstate is barely distinguishable from the median and the ditch on the other side. Everything is just covered in snow. It all looks the same. Now, there might be a few tire tracks that kind of help you and guide you, but even those tire tracks are unreliable because you see in front of those tire tracks is a car that's found its way into the median or the ditch. The masking snow makes the ground all around us look the same. The illusion, it gives the illusion that there are different ways to get to where we are trying to go. But in reality, there's only one path that will get you to where you're trying to go. Now, sin, which is our broken communion with God, it's not just doing bad things or not doing the right things. It's our broken communion with God is the snow that conceals the trusty road of authentic prayer. Sin makes it easy to veer off the road into the ditch of disingenuous prayer or crash into the median of mechanical prayer. It keeps, sin keeps us detached from God. It, it leaves our soul in a fragile, volatile, and insecure place. There's a lot of ways to mess up prayer. But thankfully... Jesus acts as a snowplow and he plows the road for us in order to get us to where prayer is meant to take us. And the way that he teaches us is by giving us the Lord's Prayer. Now we're going to spend the next six weeks unpacking and diving into the Lord's Prayer. What does, what does the Lord's Prayer mean for us? Now if I, if I were to ask you, if we're sitting down for coffee or we're at the dinner table, and I were to ask you, you know, how's your, how's your prayer, prayer life going? What, what would you say? How, how would that question, just asking it in that moment, how would that make you feel? I think for a lot of us, the topic of prayer can surface a lot of insecurities. And if you didn't have insecurities about it, uh, maybe my illustration just a minute ago started promoting some. A lot of people feel ashamed when they think about prayer because they think, you know, I, I really should be doing it more than I am. Even the people who pray daily, they might feel like that time is inadequate or it lacks a certain depth. You know, maybe, maybe we desire to be better at praying and we give it a try, but we get bored or distracted. And so there's this uncertainty, are we even doing it right? Are we, are we participating in really beneficial prayer? And, and does it even work? Now, even with all these insecurities that are probably circling this topic, everyone has an innate desire to pray. Right? E even secular, even people who don't call themselves religious, right? They, they say, you know, I, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Right? They're talking about, they're having some sort of conversation to who they're talking to that we don't really know, but they have some sort of dialogue that goes on. And J.I. Packer, he validates this. He says, as humans, prayer is the most natural activity in which we could ever engage, right? We've been wired to pray. 
because we've been wired to have a deep connection with God. We see this in the Garden of Eden. When God creates all creation and he, he creates Adam and Eve and he's walking with them, he's communing with them in the cool of the day. In that scenario, that's what prayer looks like because at that point they have face-to-face relationships with God. We've been wired for that. However, J.I. Packer also acknowledges that this activity of prayer is not the easiest. That there are a lot of challenges that stand in our way. In fact, it's so much easier to flip on a TV or flip through our social media feed than it is to pray. But when we give ourselves to the discipline, to the, to the engaging with God in prayer, we'll find that it's time well spent. It's worth the labor. So for the next six weeks, as a church, we are asking God, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to ask for things. Teach us what we should be asking for. Now when the disciples asked Jesus this, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And so that's what we're going to study. We're going to study the Lord's Prayer. Now we might know the Lord's Prayer Right? I grew up in a Lutheran church, and so from a very young age, I, I knew the Lord's Prayer. It was kind of embedded into me. Uh, my son, he's four years old. We've been reciting the Lord's Prayer for almost two years before bedtime. Every single night, he knows the Lord's Prayer. And, and Albert Moeller, a pastor in Louisville, he says that the Lord's Prayer takes 20 seconds for us to say, but a lifetime to understand. And so we're going to start, for some of us, we're going to start, and for others of us, we're going to continue that lifetime pursuit of unpacking the Lord's Prayer by going line by line and expanding upon each stanza. And before we get into that, before we learn what to pray, we need to lay a foundation for prayer and start with the basics, asking what is prayer? Now, most of us are familiar with the concept of prayer, right? We, we've probably heard it. Dear God, I just want to ask this, that you just do this and, and just do this and, and this and this and thank you. Uh, we love you. Amen. Right? We're, we're familiar with the routine of prayer. But what exactly are we doing when we pray? What are we doing between the dear God and all the just, just, justs and the Amen. In order to understand, it helps us to first kind of weed out what we're not doing. Prayer is not a cosmic news report about our lives as if God is unaware. We don't pray to God to give him an update about what's been going on in the last 24 hours. God knows all. He sees all. That he's omnipotent. That he's omniscient. There's nothing that we can update God on that he doesn't already know. He, in fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Prayer is not a formula to get God into our pocket, to, in our pocket. It's not a bargaining piece. God always does what is good, right, and perfect. And our prayers cannot alter that. Prayer is not an abstract concept of spiritual self-expression. We don't get to make up the rules for prayer. In fact, Scripture guides us and, and gives us principles, a template to guide us into really deep, heartfelt prayer. The Psalms are a perfect example. The Psalms are a book of songs and prayers that have been archived throughout history. They teach us to pray. And the last thing, prayer is not therapy. 
Now, this might push back a little bit because a lot of times we pray that we might find peace. And prayer oftentimes does generate peace. We come to God and ask for his provision, his guidance, and there's a sense of peace that he offers us. But prayer, if you're really doing prayer, there's going to be times where prayer is unsettling to your soul. Where God confronts the things in you that he's trying to refine in you. So prayer can cause major disruption in our life because God's agenda isn't just to to get us to coast on by. His agenda is to change us into the image of his son. And prayer is one of the ways that he does that. Now if our prayers are shaped by these characteristics, then it's likely that we really don't understand what prayer is. And that's fair. Uh, because as much as we talk about prayer or as much as we pray in church, there, there is not a lot of, of teaching that's done on the topic of prayer. And so Tim Keller offers us a definition that's incredibly helpful. He says, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. So in other words, prayer is both a conversation with God and an encounter of God. Now you can have encounter or you can have conversation without encounter. And if you just have conversation with without encounter, that conversation is going to be cold and distant. Think of it as uh, getting, if, if you need help online, you go to a website and you need help with a product, you open this link to a chat room, you're having communication with someone, but there's not an encounter. It's a functional, impersonal dialogue. At the end of it, you go on your way. That's it. You never think about that person ever again. Now, the same can be true about having an encounter without conversation. It's equally disappointing Think of it like standing in line to get a celebrity's autograph. Right? This is somebody you look up to, you adore, you love their movies, their music, whatever it would be. And you stand in line and you're just eager to get to, that, to the front of the table, have them sign, maybe exchange a few words. You have that encounter with that person, but nothing of substance is talked about. See, this is why prayer has to be both conversation and encounter. To, to truly pray is to have a personal conversation with a God that leads to a transformative encounter. Now, if this is the definition of prayer, when we go to look at the Lord's Prayer, we can wonder how is the Lord's Prayer lead to a conversation and encounter with God? Because it seems like I'm just being told what to say. We have this tendency to mindlessly recite the Lord's Prayer. And you're right, it doesn't feel like an encounter. It feels like empty religion. But when we unpack the Lord's Prayer, we can see that it isn't just the prayer that Christians pray, like the exclusive prayer of Christians. The Lord's Prayer is the template for all prayer that teaches us how to pray. And when we unpack the Lord's Prayer, we can see that it contains the answers to every question that we might be asking. And the more our ears are opened up to the conversation that God is having with us through prayer and through his word, the more profound this encounter becomes. See, that's why Jesus gives his disciples the Lord's Prayer. 
He wants them to have a conversation and to encounter God. Now, before Jesus shows us what to converse with God about, he's first going to show us how to enter into that conversation. Even with the most eloquent and theologically astute words that you might be able to string together, you could very well be praying wrong. Just like you can tell your wife that she's smart and pretty, but if you do it while rolling your eyes, it's completely voided of any meaning. So, let us turn to Matthew 6. Start in verse 5 here. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, uh, it's page 473. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible. That's our gift to you. We want you to go home with it. Also, the, the word, uh, scripture is printed on the pew sheet that was on your pew. Uh, and feel free to take notes uh, as we unpack this together. So Matthew 6, verse 5, the first thing that Jesus teaches us on prayer is how not to pray. Take a look at verse 5 together. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, if you do a, a word search on the word hypocrite in Matthew's gospel, you would get more than a dozen hits on this. Hypocrisy is one thing that Jesus did not tolerate, specifically among the people who were spiritual or had some sort of spiritual tent to them. Uh, and so this is something that churchgoers today might not be aware of. They forget that Jesus does not tolerate hypocrisy. Now the word hypocrite originally stems from uh, the Greek word used to, to indicate uh, actors who wore different masks to play different roles. And so what Jesus is saying here, when you go to pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. He's saying, I don't have a tolerance for the people who, who look religious, who play the part of being religious and being pious, but really don't have anything underneath that image to back it up. He had an issue with the people who did the right things for the wrong reasons. Right? You can pray. Praying is the right thing to do, but you can do it for the wrong reasons. In fact, if you go back to uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, he, he talks about um, giving to the needy. He talks about how the hypocrites uh, are giving to the needy so they would be praised. They're not giving out of a generous heart. They're giving so their image could be bolstered, so that they could be acknowledged before men. And so there's a way that you can pray. You pray in public that is done to promote an external appearance that was inaccurate with the way that your heart is bent toward God. So he warns us, don't pray like the hypocrites. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, Jesus can see right through the gimmick. Right? They love to pray publicly so other people think highly of them. And when we really get to the issue here, praying publicly is not the problem. Jesus is not opposed to the public prayers of his people. There are centuries of church history that validate the use of public prayer. But Jesus has an issue with public prayer that is motivated by self-promotion. 
know, if you're praying for the purpose of promoting yourself, you've missed the point of prayer altogether. Prayer is about giving glory to God. And when we pray for our own image, prayer is emptied of the conversation and an encounter with God that prayer was intended for because it's basically as if we're talking to nobody for the sake of ourselves. It's about flaunting me and how spiritual I am. And John Stott, he looks at this passage and says, behind their piety, these are the the hypocrites, lurked their pride. The act of praying among the hypocrites is fueled by their sinful nature. Look at what I'm capable of. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at me. Look at me. And in the end, if you finish that verse 5, you see that they get what they're after, and that's it. She says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They get what they're after. People look at them. They see them. Maybe they're impressed by them, but that's it. There's no communion with God. There's no encounter. There's no conversation. And so it's like a a broken cycle. They get what they're looking for. And there's no real benefit. Now, a lot of us don't like to think, I, I don't think very many of us would look at this passage and, and adopt the, uh, the label as a hypocrite when we examine our prayer life. Right? That, that's one of those words that we try to steer away from. But I think there are a couple of ways that we see, uh, maybe it's not hypocritical, but maybe the underlying pride is there motivating our prayer life. I think there's a couple of ways that we can see this happening within our missional communities. Now, the first way is one that I was frequently guilty of in my early years of being in missional community, and probably still am today. And that is packing your prayers with as much theological content and buzzwords that people can look at your prayer and go, wow, that boy knows how to pray. You get done praying in MC, and and people are like, man, how did he get... The words propitiation, substitutionary atonement, and hypostatic union all into one prayer. Now flexing your prayer muscles to create an image of being ultra-spiritual or or theologically astute does not advance your prayer life. Most likely it's just a bunch of theological jargon that's probably true, but but you've had... uh, a disconnect with those beautiful theological truths. Or maybe it's the opposite, where, where it's not so much you're heavy on the theological truths, but you use this lovey-dovey language uh, among your community that suggests that you have a really deep relationship with the Lord. So people look at you as you pray, and they say, wow, their relationship with God must be very strong. But the reality is, the only time you pray is in front of people. Right? It's kind of an act. You don't really have that deep, intimate relationship with God. You're kind of a phony. It's like being married and only talking to your spouse on date nights. Like, you're going to have a crappy marriage, but the waiter's going to be really impressed. 
praying to uphold and promote self-image is a one-sided conversation. There is no conversation with God. There is no encounter of God. You miss prayer completely. Not only does this affect you, but it affects the people in your community. To pray, to pray like a hypocrite is, is not only a disservice to you, but the people listening. They think, oh, that's how you're supposed to pray. Well, I, I could never do that. I can't even pronounce those words. Or they look at, at how you speak such in a lovey-dovey language and like, oh, you have to have that kind of relationship with God before you pray. Well, I don't, I'm not there yet, so I, I can't pray aloud. God's people ought to be marked by earnest and honest prayer. And hypocrisy sabotages that. Now, the other way, I said there were two ways, the first way. The second way that I can see this happening in a missional community looks different but still has the same driving force. And this is with the people who refuse to pray aloud among other Christians. Now, if you're a recent convert, I'm not talking about you. Uh, prayer is a language that takes time and comfortability to, to get your hands on. But for other people who have been walking with the Lord, you try to preserve your image by remaining silent. What stops you from praying is, I don't want to look like an idiot before my MC family. Now what I need you to see is that that mentality towards prayer is just as much fueled by pride as the other side of hypocrisy. It's driven by a concern for what people think of you. And so there's this sense of self-prescribed shame that keeps you, from limits you from really experiencing a communication and encounter with God. It's the same motive, the same motive of pride, just a different expression of it. So that's the first way you can pray wrong. Jesus says, pray like a hypocrite. You'll pray wrong every time. And if that's the first way to pray wrong, the second way to pray wrong is like praying like the pagans. Now, when I say pagan, what I, I mean by that word, it's a biblical word. This is uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing the New Testament, he, he uses pagans and Christians and those who are in Christ and use those two words as a distinguish, uh, to distinguish the two different types of people. Those who are believers and those who are not yet believers. And thankfully, the word pagan or the label pagan isn't irreversible here, right? If you're, if you're a pagan, uh, God can change that. He's in the business of transforming pagans into truly pious and righteous people. And so Jesus says down in verse 7, he says, here's how you pray wrong uh, as, a, as a pagan. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard from their many words. Now at this point in history, when Jesus is talking to his followers, there are two types of people. There are the Jews and the non-Jews. The, the Jews and the pagans. Jews were the ones who knew God, who worshipped the true God. And Gentiles were the outsiders, the pagans who didn't, not, didn't yet know God. And within each ethnicity of pagans, they had their own religion, their own beliefs about prayer. In fact, every single religion has these sort of, uh, this sort of frame, their own framework for prayer. 
Now, in the immediate context of the people Jesus is talking to, pagan prayer looked like excessive repetition, hoping to just blabber, blabber, blabber that God would hear you or a God, some sort of God, would hear you. Now, I think that this mentality very much exists today. There are people who are just praying, praying, praying. They're, they're talking. They're not quite sure who they're talking to or even if they'll be, they're being heard. But they talk and talk and talk, heaping up these empty phrases. But I think there are a couple other ways that we've adopted in the modern era where we heap up empty words as well. The first is what I would call secular prayer. Now, this is what people do, uh, what people do who don't really know who God is, but they know that they should be praying, right? Before you're going into a test or you're driving in the snowstorm, you're, you're praying to somebody. You're, you're uttering words of some sort of petition, but you don't exactly know who you're talking to. They're talking, but unsure of who they're addressing. So that's the secular way of prayer. The second way that's been adopted is, is in the trend of transcendental meditation, which is basically the act of emptying your mind, right? That meditation in the new age, the new wave of, of meditation is to clear your mind of everything, blank slate. Now, I'm not anti-meditation. In fact, we go to the Psalms and we can see how David, even in our call to worship, how we meditate on God. Christian meditation is not a matter of clearing your minds. It's a matter of setting your mind on Christ in God. And so the emptiness of meditation is one way that we could heap up the emptiness. Now regardless of how people are heaping up these empty words or even striving for emptiness, it is unproductive prayer. There's no desire for relationship. The communion is one-sided. The experience is hindered. It's like trying to reach an apple hanging up on a tree by, by heaping up leaves only to stand on it and realize that it doesn't get you up any further off the ground. Now, Jesus does a good job of telling us how not to pray. And thankfully, he moves into teaching us how to pray. After warning us not to pray like the religious hypocrite, he says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now Jesus is not anti-public prayer here. Nor is Jesus saying that prayer needs to be tied to a specific geographical coordinate, right? Just in your bedroom, that's the only place where you pray. In fact, later on in the New Testament, we're told to pray without ceasing. That's not a prescription to be hermits. But Jesus is saying that our prayer life ought to be like an iceberg. That the tip of the iceberg, what we see externally, the visible part, is maybe public prayer, just a little bit proportionately to what's underneath the water. The majority of our prayer life ought to be in private. When he tells us to pray to your Father who is in secret. Now this does not mean that God is secret. That like here we are in this room, we're, we're kind of keeping a secret under wraps. No, there are 2.2 billion Christians who are praying to God. God is not a secret. 
But the way we cultivate intimacy and relationship and communion with God is by cultivating that in private. And when we're in private with God, it gives us freedom to be vulnerable and to to bear our hearts before our Heavenly Father without spectators, without having to worry how other people are perceiving us in that moment. And in that sense, we can come to God as we are. See, Jesus tells us not to be like the hypocrites and telling us that he's saying, be true to who you are, pray as you Pray in your heart language. Use your own words. Pray as you are. Don't pretend. You don't have to hide yourself and be ashamed. Now with that invitation, that is an incredible relief because that means we don't have to be a more spiritual version of ourselves in order to come to God in prayer. It means that we don't have to put ourselves together before we breach the topic of prayer with God. It gives us permission to pray as we are. And the more you pray honestly from your heart, without thought of your image and how others might view you, the more Jesus changes you into his own image. See, this is what it means to be rewarded in secret. To have that communion, that intimacy with God that is so sweet that you just want to become like him. See, that's what prayer is after, that secret reward. And then Jesus, he contrasts praying like the pagans in in verse 8. He says, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. He said, you don't need to have these marathon prayers. God already knows what you're going to ask. Now, one of the aspects in praying correctly is knowing who you are communicating with, knowing the character of God. This is why Keller says that that prayer is a conversation that started with Scripture because God reveals himself to us in the pages of Scripture. If we want to know what God is like, the first place we ought to turn is to his word. And his word shows us, even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father... That our prayer, our conversation with God is with a loving and compassionate Heavenly Father. A Father who listens warmly, who's never annoyed, who's always eager to hear from us, who anticipates our every single need. And to know that, to know that we're speaking to our Heavenly Father keeps us from rambling or feeling like we have to dance for our dinner to wave our hands to get God's attention. We know because he's a gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we already have it. So on one hand, we're speaking to God as our Heavenly Father. But on the other hand, when we go to pray, we must know that we are encountering the supremely holy, almighty God. The God who is described as a a consuming fire. Now he's described this way as a consuming fire because his, his holiness burns within him. That anything that is unholy will be consumed by him. And because of God's holiness, we cannot pray flippantly or casually. Because our sin makes us unholy and incompatible with God. In a sense, to pray in ourselves is like a death sentence. It's to approach God as sinful people. 
Now our sin turns us into the hypocrites that want to prop ourselves up or, or the ignorant people who want to fill our mouths with empty phrases. Flannery Connor says, she's confessing to God, and she says, I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. When we go to pray, there's a very real sense that we are in our own way of experiencing, of encountering, of communicating with God. It's because these issues are deeply rooted in our heart. They stand in the way. They're like barriers to real relationship with God. God would be fair if he were to board his ears shut from our prayers. That would be fair for God because we have turned against him, we have rebelled against that relationship with him, we have broken communion with him because of our sin. But the good news is that God does not do that. Through Christ, we have access to the supremely holy and loving Father. Ephesians 2.18 tells us that through Jesus we have access by the Spirit to God the Father. That because Jesus went to the cross to bear our sins, to, to, to become, uh, to take the, the punishment for being ignorant and being hypocritical, that now we can walk in Christ's righteousness and have access to this Father in heaven. See, what qualifies us for prayer isn't our ability to be a good person. It's not our ability to string beautiful words together. What qualifies us for prayer is a relationship with Jesus, knowing that he went to the cross for our sin. That because of the perfect work of Jesus, we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us. That we don't have to timidly approach God though he is a holy, consuming fire, with confidence clothed in Christ's righteousness, we can approach the God of the universe. And we can pray as ourselves. I want to share a quote with you from Rankin Wilborn. Because I think a lot of times, it, we don't, to be in Christ, there's still this feeling of inadequacy with our words and our language of how to really cultivate that communion. And here is the good news in the gospel. He says, when in our failure and bewilderment we do not know how to pray as we ought or when we forget to pray altogether, Christ's, Christ takes what is ours. He takes our mumbled, sputtering, unworthy prayers, our sighs and garbled words, and he purifies them and offers them without spot or stammer to his Father. We're told that Jesus lives to intercede for us. That as we go to pray, pray to God, that Jesus is the mediator between our prayers, making them worthy of the ears of God. See, this is the benefit, one of the many benefits that, receive, that we receive when our faith is in Jesus Christ. We have unfettered access to God in prayer, so much so that Jesus actually commands us, pray like this. John Murray says, the life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic ascent. 
It must have the passion and warmth and love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. Do you want to know what the secret reward of your prayer is? It is here in true communion with God. Friends, let us, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, lay hold of such a sweet reward to pray without ceasing, to come to the Lord as we are, knowing that Christ has cleansed us, that he has made our words acceptable to God, and that our prayers are heard. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have given us the means in which to pray, that you, you are teaching us how to pray when we don't know how, and you are there making what we pray suitable for your ears through Christ. And this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we see what, what was necessary in order for that to happen. That Christ's body had to be broken in place of ours. That his blood had to be shed in the place of ours so that we could be reconciled, that we could have communion with you. Father, I pray that I'm asking now in the name of Jesus that you would cultivate in our hearts a desire to be in communion with you that you would put within us a desire to pray. Maybe it's a matter of uh, unplugging our TV so that we can have more uh, robust time with you, turning off our social media, whatever it is that distracts us from really voyaging into conversation and encounter with you. And I pray, Father, that as we uh, engage in conversation with you, would the encounter of you become stronger and sweeter that we would be transformed by one degree of glory to the next into the image of your beloved Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.